Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, I do want to take a second. My name is Spence. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy. And before I jump in to our, um, to our sermon today, I just want to take a second, maybe us together, thank um, Zach and our worship team. They are um, volunteering their time each weekend that they lead us. And man, I'm just so encouraged and thankful uh, for those brothers and really the whole worship team, the brothers and sisters that lead each week. So you guys join me in just thanking them um, real quick for what they're doing here at Providence Road. Man. Uh, this morning, we're continuing on in our series in the Ten Commandments. So if you got your Bible, hop over to Exodus chapter 20. That's going to be our spot for the whole summer, whole summer in that one chapter. And listen, what we're going to see over and over, and I hope you saw the beginnings of last week, is how the law of God and the love of God are not in conflict with each other, but actually the law of God is a product of the love of God. A lot of times people look at the Bible and they're like, Old Testament, that's the law. New Testament, that's the love of God, right? But what we're going to see is that as we walk through the Ten Commandments, is that the Old Testament, those, those Ten Commands are actually a product of God's love giving us here on earth a way to live that will result in our flourishing, right? And so if we were to abide by these things, we would actually experience, as we kind of tongue-in-cheek say, the perfect life, right? These are 10 ways to be perfect, because if we were to abide by them, and if all of us did, man, it would revolutionize our society. But at the same time, what we're going to see is that when we start to look at the commands closer, they kind of activate in us. Each command activates a desire to break it, right? Just like ever since you were a little one and you got a rule from mom or dad or whoever, and you're like, oh, now I got to go and break that thing. The same thing with the commands. And we're going to see that we break each one of these on a regular basis. And so we're going to be faced with a need for grace, for forgiveness. And so we're going to see the love of God, not only in the commands, but the love of God come up again in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who gives us forgiveness when what we deserve is judgment and punishment. Both the gospel and the law are products of the love of God. So my hope is as we walk through this summer, what you're going to see is not just a, a burden. I hope you don't leave with a burden of a to-do list. I really hope that's not what comes out of time in the Ten Commandments, but instead, I hope you see more of the glorious character of God, more of his great love for you. And then as a result, you see a life that he's calling you into that is beautiful and desirable. That's where we're going over the course of the summer. Today, we're going to look at the second commandment. Last week was the first. Today's the second. We're going to follow a pretty basic outline for our sermon. So if you're one of those note takers that needs a little bit of, of order in what we're doing, um, we're going to look at what it says. We're going to look at how we break it. And then we're going to look at how do we respond, given the spot that we're in, um, after breaking the command. All right, so what does it say? How do we break it? And where do we go from here? Let's start just looking into this thing. I'm going to read it for us. Exodus 24 through 6. Everybody ready? Good? Yeah, good. All right, we're in it. For the rest of y'all, um, the four that said yes, they're in it. I would ask the rest of you to, to lock in now, all right? Um, this is actually one of the longest commandments. This one and the one on the Sabbath. They're a couple verses long. So let's take a look. Do not make an idol for yourself. 
That's probably the summary that you might remember of it. Whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth, do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. All right, the big word for us, of course, is right there in verse four, and that's that word idol. Another translation would be image or icon. If you were around the Bible, maybe growing up, um, sort of a, a translation from a generation ago would be, do not make any graven images. It was actually a really good one. Uh, what he's saying is don't add to, that whether it's a shape or an image, don't add anything to God that he has not given for us, okay? And the key different between the, the difference between the first command and the second command um, kind of look like this. I'm gonna put them up against each other so you can see them, okay? The first command says, don't have any other gods except for me. The second command is gonna say, listen, don't make an idol for yourself. The first command is about worshiping the right God. The second command is about worshiping the right God in the right way. This is all about how we worship. The first one was about who we worship, and that distinction is, is everything. I mean, have you ever found yourself in any kind of trouble for doing the right thing the wrong way, ever, right? This happens all the time, especially in um, uh, dating relationships, saying the right thing, saying it the wrong way, dating and marriage, you get the question, hey, how do I look? That's a big question, right? You gotta answer that one right, because you could say, you could not be looking, not paying attention, just kind of look away and say, oh, you look amazing, now, that's the right thing to say, but you said it in the wrong way, and what's going to come back to you is it's not what you said. It's how you said it, right? The way in which you said it. You instead say, baby, you look amazing, right there with that eye contact, whole different message received, right? How you say it matters. Um, ever gotten into trouble for doing what you were supposed to do, but you did it in the wrong way, right? The boss asks you to do something you're not happy about. And so you get mad at her, you get mad at everybody else, you're slamming the stapler around the cubicle or whatever you're doing, you're huffing and puffing around and people are worried that you're gonna blow up on somebody and your boss pulls you into her office and she's got something, she's gotta correct you and you're like, what? I did the right thing. And your boss says, yeah, but you did it the wrong way, right? It's not what you did, it's how you did it. And maybe you just did the wrong thing because you didn't know any better, right? Your friend, or maybe you did, did it the wrong way. Your friend says, um, listen, I appreciate you wanting to care for me. And so the, you, you putting my profile on every dating app that exists, like, I, I appreciate you wanting to care for me. Right motivation, wrong execution, right? You had the right idea, but you did it the wrong way. It is, it's not universally true, I know, but more times than not, the right thing done the wrong way leads you to the wrong outcome, right? And it should come as no surprise that this is true of how we interact, of how we interact with God. We can worship the right God the wrong way. And in doing so, we find ourselves in the wrong place, in a place we don't want to be in. The first commandment was about worshiping other gods, the wrong gods. This one's all about worshiping the right God the wrong way. And I'm telling you, church, I think this might be the one that we get into more than and find ourselves breaking more than any others that leads to more destruction and more, it's more corrosive to our souls and to our relationship with God maybe than any of the rest of these. Uh, so let me give you kind of the big idea we're going with today. It's a little bit wordy, but I think it's critical for us. The second commandment is saying that you must not imagine the one true God to be who you prefer him to be. You must worship him as he has revealed himself to be. 
And y'all, the difference is going to be everything. The second command is saying we got to not imagine the one true God to be who we prefer him to be. But we got to worship him as he revealed himself to be. And then he has this explanation. I actually want to go to the end of this commandment and that explanation. I want to go there for a second before we really deal in the, the heart of the worshiping these idol things. Um, the spiritual destiny of generations are apparently at stake in how we worship God. That's what he's saying. I want to take a second, make sure we're clear on something. Uh, first, repeatedly in scripture, God makes sure to understand that we are each individually responsible for how we sin and disobey God. All right, that's Deuteronomy 24. Fathers are not to be put to death for their children. Children not to be put to death for their fathers. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. All right, that's saying that each person is responsible for his or her sin. So what's the second commandment saying? He's saying that God will punish successive generations for repeating the same sins they learned from mom and dad. God isn't going to let children off the hook because they learned sinful habits from their parents. He's saying when they commit the same sins as their parents, which they are very likely to do, of course, he will punish them just as he did their parents. And I know I'm only about seven or eight minutes into this sermon, but this just got real and it got real fast. Because this commandment is all about believing there is a God, but then warning us about treating him in a way unworthy of who he is. And so all of us, all of us may have some pattern shattering responses to this commandment if we will really consider it. First, let me talk to parents. Kids see everything, don't they? And then they repeat it. And we're gonna talk about how we break the command in a little while, but listen, if your kids hear about a big, important God on Sunday morning for an hour, and then that matches the God of your home, well, then they're likely to worship that God as they grow. But a small God that kind of matters, but doesn't match up with Sundays or, or whatever, it's not ultimately going to matter. That kind of God will not matter to them at all once they leave your home. This is super convicting to me right now because as a parent of four who are in that age where they are all watching everything and they're listening, um, I'm locked in with you today. But listen, beyond parents, all of us, we need to acknowledge for a moment. This is gonna be a little heady and a little emotional. We need to acknowledge for a moment how formative the religious practices were of those who raised us. Whether or not you think you were raised in a religious environment, Everyone is religious. Everyone gives themselves to something, whether that had a religion tag on it or not. Everybody worships something. And you may have a conception of God you brought in here today, of how you relate to him, that as actually born out of your upbringing, but maybe it doesn't square with the God who has revealed himself in scripture. And if that's true, man, today and the subsequent process of, of working through what this command says might be very disorienting for you. Bottom line, what I'm asking you to do is to just walk through the rest of this morning assuming that you don't have God 100% figured out yet, all right? Because listen, the second command is where most of us are gonna be challenged because we gotta say, okay, I'm worshiping God. I wanna worship God. A lot of people are here. We're at church together, y'all. A lot of people are thinking we wanna worship the one true God. Worship, though, is not just singing. It's whole life surrender to God. Am I worshiping God the way I think he should be worshiped or the way he says he should be worshiped? That might be a challenge. I told you the commandments are deep. They are whole life altering and forming. 
All right, caveat over, back into that first part. This idol is a human-made image of God, whether physical or mental. And so we break this command whenever we add something to God. Maybe it's an image that goes beyond or runs contrary to who God says he is in Scripture. And this command, again, we don't think about it a lot. In fact, I heard y'all last week when we were listing off. Do you remember the 10? This is the one a lot of y'all and I said, you know, don't make an idol. You go, oh, yeah, you know. So there's that we, we just don't naturally or are quick to think about, but we break it so often. And in breaking it, we distort who God really is. And in doing that, we miss out on the power of knowing the one true God. Worship God, this thing says, as he has revealed himself to be. Let me talk about why this is so important. Listen, the Bible tells us God is invisible. All right, that's just one of his characteristics. He is too big to be given one single image to. And any attempt we make to try and make him visible, any attempt we do to that end will certainly distort him because he is at best, excuse me, any image we make will at best just leave out a whole lot about him. All right, I mean, think about this for a second. If I were to issue you um, a challenge right now or a task, which I'm not gonna do, but if I were to say, okay, I want you to draw God. Who do you think God is? Draw him as you would want to depict him. Now, if you were to draw him, and let's say you draw him, um, he's smiling, all right? Well, the reason you might draw him smiling would be really good because you'd be revealing the fatherliness of God, his warmth, his love, and, and compassion. But you would be leaving out his wrath against sin, which is very real about him. Now, if you drew him frowning, of course, you'd be leaving, you'd be focusing in on his wrath, but leaving out that grace and forgiveness. Any physical attempt to depict God will leave out way more than it will reveal. And God is jealous not only that he is worshiped and no other is worshiped, but that he's worshiped the right way. And this is for our good. I'm, listen, I'm not saying the Bible forbids ever drawing a, a picture of God. I'm saying it certainly prevents worshiping such pictures and it's probably good wisdom to stay away from it. Um, I'll give you an example of why it's so, so dangerous. Um, you know, those um, kind of, those renderings of Jesus, especially from the like enlightenment period. Uh, they're often found in, in cathedrals and stained glass and stuff like that. Um, you know, the ones with like the, um, and by the way, if I'm just uh, kind of unearthing wrong childhood worship patterns, I'm sorry, this is part of what this is all about. Uh, but you know, the six foot two flowy haired white Jesus. Um, I mean, culturally, that's a little absurd, right? Uh, that's just not a first century Jew that you're looking at when you look at those. Now, look, Jesus didn't have an Instagram account. We don't know what he looked like. That is for our, our good. But when we all get to heaven, we shouldn't be too surprised if we are all worshiping a brown man about Pastor Richard's height, all right? That's what we should be <laughs> thinking, all right? So what's happening in, in those images? Well, people were making God into their own image, right? Desiring to worship God through the arts, that's good. That's not a bad thing, but making false images of God, that's the wrong way. And it could be corrosive to us. Uh, there was an evangelist, a guy named Tom Skinner. Uh, he grew up in the streets of Harlem. Uh, he said the reason he didn't become a Christian at a younger age was because he had seen several of those kinds of pictures of Jesus and thought to himself, that guy wouldn't last a day on the streets where I'm from, <laughs> right? Even the best, most artistic renderings just can't portray God. And beneath all, of, all that, God's saying, listen, I don't even want you to try and imagine an image of me because art is just an expression, right? Physical images are just imagination expressed. God's saying, you must not imagine me to be whatever you want me to be. Your imagination needs to be regulated by truth. That's what he's saying. So then how do we, how do we break this command? 
Well, let me start off with um, an example from just a couple of chapters later of how Israel does it. Uh, Israel, this is um, Israel and the golden calf, right? Exodus 32, if you want to go read it later, it's a very um, important story to understanding the second commandment. Uh, the commandment was, give, this was the one that Israel broke before Moses even got off the mountain with the commandments. Well, he hadn't even gotten down yet, and they've already broken it. Um, he's up on the mountain with God. Moses is not coming back when they expected him to come back. Right? They all say, all right, Moses, go up there, get those things, come back down. We got the timeline. So Israel goes into a panic. They start to think that God has abandoned them. So they take off their jewelry, give it to this guy, Aaron. Aaron melts it down, turns it into a golden calf so that they will have an icon, an image to represent God, which is amazing, isn't it? They, they didn't trust the God they couldn't see. Tell me if that rings clear and rings true, rings familiar with anybody else. They couldn't trust the God that they couldn't see. An invisible God wasn't enough for them. They needed a God that they could see because maybe if they could see it, then maybe they could kind of control what he would do for them. But Moses, our guy who is writing this story, makes sure to let us know that those Israelites thought they were worshiping the one true God. All right, look at verse five of Exodus 32. When Aaron saw what he had built, uh, he built an altar in front of it and he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. And the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Look, to the Lord, that's Aaron's using God's covenant name he had given to Israel to talk about his relationship with them. This is Aaron saying, okay, the God that we know is now visible and represented. His power will be channeled through this icon. They changed I am to what we want you to be. And the result is eating and drinking. And that word party is a word for a party where there is a lot of sexual promiscuity, and I'll let you fill that in, okay? Um, their worship of this image, because the image was powerless, actually corrupted them spiritually. You see what's happening in trying to create an image of God that they thought would help them. They actually manufactured an insufficient image of God that was powerless and ultimately spiritually corrosive, uh, J.I. Packer, uh, I told you, I'm be referencing his book on the Ten Commandments a lot. He said, any statement that begins, I like to think of God as, should never be trusted, ever. Um, you know, that's, which, by the way, is why I love that scene from Ricky Bobby um, and Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, um, Cal Norton Jr., Y'all know, know what I'm talking about. Um, it is incredibly insightful and very entertaining. Uh, but he says, you know, I like, they're sitting around the table getting ready to pray. And Cal Norton says, I like to think of my Jesus as one who wears a tuxedo t-shirt. Because, you know, he says, I'm formal, but, but I like to party. Because I like to party, so I like to think my Jesus likes to party too, right? And it, that, that, I know that sounds silly, but how true of how we actually act towards God in subtle ways. We, we might do it or we say things like, my God, I'm sure my God wouldn't make a big deal out of, right? My God wouldn't do that. My God would be this way. Surely God wouldn't, and we insert our understanding, our impression, our feelings, and put that onto who God is. We're creating false images of God and trying to relate to that God as our God. And it doesn't matter how we like to see God. God is who God is. And that's what the second commandment's saying to us. The question of the second commandment is, will you allow truth to shape and guide your imagination or will you make the mistake of allowing your imagination to shape what is true? 
And y'all, Satan's strategy from the very beginning has been to lie to us about our view of God, twist it, and then have us reject that distorted view of God, thinking we're rejecting the real God. That right there is how we break the second commandment. We define God by who we want him to be instead of who he is. And of course, that's going to be offensive to God, right? I mean, think about it. I told you last week, God talks and talks about our relationship with him like um, husband and wife kind of thing, right? Um, it's a very intimate, covenantal relationship. I mean, imagine you're in a relationship, it's going well, but then you learn that your new girlfriend is going around saying, yeah, I like to imagine him that he's six foot four and, and looks like Thor, you know, Infinity War Thor, not in-game Thor, but you know, that guy, you, you'd be offended, right? Why she got to go reimagining you? How come five, nine ain't good enough? You know, whatever it is. Um, listen, the same thing. When we reimagine God, he's offended. He's offended by that. He's laid out certain ways. And we see Satan leading people to do this all throughout scripture. It starts in his first appearance, Genesis 3. Right at the beginning with the first humans, he comes in and he lies to twist Adam and Eve's view of who God is and give them a false view of God. Look, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. It's Genesis 3, um, verse 1, and then I'll go to verses 4 and 5. It was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And verse 4, here's what he says to Adam and Eve. No, you will not die when you eat that, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, and now he's going to twist who God is in their eyes. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's happening right there? He's twisting Eve's view of God in this case. He's saying, listen, Eve, God is just insecure. He's just afraid to lose control. And because he's insecure, he's making these rules just to keep you down. When he denies you that, it's because he's oppressing you. It's, because he's not, it's not because he's so wise. He's insecure. And naturally, Eve says, well, yeah, I don't want to follow a God like that. So she chooses what she deems best, because this distorted view of God, of course, is not a compelling one. She's created a false image of God and is now rejecting the false image. Another obvious one is Job. If you know the story, Job moves from trusting God in real hardship to a place of real bitterness and complaining because he doesn't get an immediate response to God. He cries out, God, why is this all happening to me? He doesn't get an immediate response. And so he starts saying, God must not exist. He must not be here because all this is happening and I'm not hearing back from God. You see what Satan did? Satan planted an idea in Job that God owed him an explanation for why bad things happen. That God should be understandable to man. That's a distortion though of who God has revealed himself to be. So God shows up 38 chapters into the book of Job and corrects Job in a pretty just firm awesome, a little bit sarcastic, you should go read it way. He says, oh, Job, where were you when I established the earth? Where were you when I put the stars and seas into place? Do you know the road that light comes from when it leaves its home and comes out into the earth? Have you ever commanded the morning? And Job says, well, um, I, I don't know. And God says, that's right. And if you can't comprehend even the secrets of nature, it's safe to say you can't comprehend my ways. Satan's primary way of getting us to break the second commandment is to twist our view of God and then to sit back and laugh as we get disillusioned with this false, powerless version of God that we've created. Y'all know we don't necessarily create a lot of wooden statues 
that we think represent God in our day, like uh, Moses was saying. Maybe we do, but there are other ways that we worship God incorrectly. There are mental images. There are assumptions. This week, I read some wonderful insights um, into how we distort God and in doing so, how we break the second commandment. So I wanna, I wanna give you a couple of them, uh, just the type of God that we turn the one true God into. Um, I pulled this from a few different pastors. I've cited them in our manuscript we post online each week. If you wanna go do some more homework, good stuff in there. They list out some ways and I've added a couple. Uh, and here's the first one, one that I just was thinking of, uh, that we turn the one true God into the rosary God. Uh, this is the closest one to the instruction forbidden in the commandment. Now, the rosary in its original creation was intended to be a prayer leading us to a restful place of worship, good motivation. But in real practice, what often happens is something like a string of beads or a crucifix becomes necessary for worshiping the one true God. And this is not a single out. Our Catholic friends, by the way, every stream of Christianity does this in some way. Uh, I know people that will, uh, I've had someone ask me one time in a very... Um, uh, honest, pure intention way. There was a, a Bible that they had heard of that had um, special healing powers. And they thought, do we need to go and touch that specific Bible located in this um, area of the United States? And then maybe we will get healing from God. I'm like, well, the desire to get healing from God, good motivation. Believing it comes from an object, wrong execution. Our God does not confine his power to any object. God's spirit exists in and among his people. When we say we need certain things in order to be close to God, or to access God, we're reconceiving God. And in doing so, we are radically limiting him. And I know we have enough people with backgrounds where this is a real thing that we need to be clear. No saints or statues or talismans or crucifix should be used to access God. That's making God far smaller than he really is. He is jealous that he, he, is jealous that he be worshiped alone, not through images. Here's another way that we do it a lot. We turn God into the one true God, into the experience God. This is the God that is only real if you feel him. If your heart doesn't flutter when you think of him, then he must not be real. And entire Christian movements can fall victim to this if we're not careful. We try to conjure up a felt sense of his presence because, man, we want that feeling. And the feeling is what is validating that he's actually real. The problem with this is, uh, is obvious, right? This view of God. Sometimes we don't feel his presence. David and the other psalmists are constantly crying out about how they don't feel God's presence. Jesus himself is on the cross crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't mean God abandoned them, obviously. But if our faith is based on our feelings, we'll stop believing in our God when our feelings shift. And some people have walked away from God, listen, because they weren't experiencing him anymore. But what if you walked away from a God that never existed in the first place? because the experienced God doesn't exist. It's not the real God. Feelings were meant to be led by faith, not the other way around. So when God feels distant, our faith is to tell our feelings what is true. So if you stop believing in the experienced God, good for you. That was a false image. Turn back to the one true God that we see in scripture. Here's another, another way we distort God. We turn him into the smooth sailing God. I thought this was a really good one. With smooth sailing God, we assume that life will work out good for us because, hey, God's on our side. So we'll never have hardships. The problem, of course, is what? Hardships come. <laughs> so when bad things happen to good people, it crushes our faith. This is how you know, by the way, if you've fallen victim to this, bad things happen to good people, it crushes you, crushes your faith. 
Not just that you grieve for them, that's perfectly healthy, but it starts to crush your faith because we, we start to assume, well, God must not be real. The problem is, where does the Bible say that bad things or unfair things won't happen to good people? The whole religion started with a really bad thing happening to a really good person. So if you lost your faith in a smooth sailing God, good. That was a false image anyway. This is why I get so fired up and I try to contain myself a lot um, here as I'm preaching God's word to you, but I get fired up about that whole prosperity teaching or anything that gets near it because it violates the second commandment so blatantly and in doing so, it wreaks havoc on true faith. Smooth sailing God is a false image. God doesn't promise prosperity. He promises us his presence. And Isaiah 43 says, when you pass through the waters, he will be with you. The waters won't overwhelm you. Romans 8 says, when you face death itself, death cannot separate you from the love and presence of God. So maybe you need to turn to the true God that is actually big enough to handle your pain. I think I have one more that I'll, that I'll give you, and that's where we turn God into the no fun God. This is the God that doesn't want you to have fun in your life, Right? Your non-Christian friends get to have all the fun and you don't because God's put a lot of rules in place to keep you from being able to have fun. I recognize uh, that's a certain group of people that think that way, but where did you get that idea of God? Psalm 16, fullness of joy and eternal pleasures are found in the presence of God. People often think, I'm not gonna get too serious with God. I'm gonna invite him in, make him a part of my life, and I get too serious because he'll suck all the fun out of the room. Listen, that's just not Jesus. It's not the God of the Bible. Jesus is making weddings more fun. He's bringing joy. God is the one who created the emotion of joy. He's got more joy and soul satisfaction for you than anything here on this earth. And he wants to give it to you. Look, there are many others, many ways that we distort God and break this command. I wanna talk about where we go from here with the rest of our time. There are two really beautiful um, simple steps that we can take to begin worshiping God rightly from here. One, the first one I'm gonna give you might seem a little bit out of left field, like a quick turn, and the other one um, shouldn't surprise you at all. But here's where we go from here. The first is to pursue friendships with believers. Let me explain. How cool is this? There is one creation that God gave his image to. He gave his image to people. Genesis 1 says we are the divinely chosen statues meant to show what God is like, created in his image after his likeness. And when we worship other images, what we're often doing is looking for God where he doesn't exist and missing out on where God's image does exist. And then what's fascinating is how different we all are from each other, which points to the beauty and complexity of God. And God says, when someone becomes a follower of Christ, he comes in, he makes his home with that person. And that person walking around under the guidance and strength of God is now an ambassador for God's love and character here in this world. So here's the awesome thing about being a part of the local church. We get together every week, a bunch of God's image bearers to celebrate God's love and then remind one another of it. And that's why we make community, y'all, so central to what we do here in, in our church. Our church gathers every week in smaller groups we call community groups. The reason is that because God has created each one of us differently and told us that we can see him in one another. And we're his ambassadors of love and mercy to one another. As we care for one another, as we get into life with one another and get real with one another, 
we will actually begin to, to encounter the true God, the character of God in the way that he designed it, which is incredibly powerful. We are engineered, each one of us, to be reflections of the character of God. We'll never do it perfectly. We will mess up a lot. That's why we should lean on one another, on one another, but not worship one another. Put that weight of security and approval on one another. We don't do that, which actually leads me right to the second point. Pursue friendships with other believers, but listen, worship Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, he, Christ, is the image, the exact imprint and nature of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. To look on Christ is to look on the face of him who could not be seen on the mountain. Jesus did the impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who can't be seen. That's the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation, y'all. We don't need pictures, statues, icons. We have the icon, Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. It seems that God knew we would look for an image. We would search one out to worship. And so in his grace, he gave us his image fully in Jesus. So as we look to him, we're gonna find an image we can't control, but we can serve. We can give our devotion to. We can love him and he will not fail us. He will not ask us to give more and more so that we can get less and less. He served us first, he gave us everything. And as we begin to serve him, what do we get? Fullness of joy. He said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, fullness of joy. I told you the commandments reveal to us how the law of God and the love of God are allies. We break the second commandment all the time. We're constantly reimagining God. We craft a lesser version of God and we give our worship to it and in doing so, separate ourselves from the one true God. God says that rejection of him is sin and in his love, he came to us in the flesh to show us who he really is even show us how to pray, how to love, and then ultimately to reconcile us back to the one true God. So look at Jesus. Look at the one who fulfilled the law completely in Christ. In Christ, the law of God, the love of God are embodied perfectly. And when we receive that salvation, y'all, then we're made at peace with this one true God. When we love like he loves, when he loves what he loves, our lives are transformed. They're given a sense of wholeness that we can never have without it. My community group leader, um, Jake, he was asking us the other day, uh, we we're going through a series just sharing stories and what God's been doing in our lives. And um, I told him, I told our group, I was like, you know, one of the things that God has done in me that's new um, is that he's made me into a more compassionate person. I genuinely feel I'm more compassionate than I was about three years ago because my reaction to any situation used to be a lot of self-preservation, right? I wanna protect myself. And so whatever happens, my first instinct is protect me, even if it's at the cost of you. But as I have been taught by scripture, challenged by you guys to settle my soul deeper into the joy of Christ, it's beginning to allow me to look at others the way he does. And it's just a far more joyful way to live. Now I don't do it all the time, right? I'm a sinner, I'll never image God perfectly. That's who Christ is. If you need evidence, five o'clock traffic or kids' bedtimes, okay? I'm still not entirely compassionate in some spaces, all right? Um, but God is compassionate and I see it in Christ. I experience it in Christ. And as I direct my thoughts to the one true God that we see in scripture, I focus my heart and mind on Christ who I see in scripture. 
I just find I have more compassion to give. What do you do with this? Maybe you do what, what I've been trying to do. I think what we've been trying to do is to go look at the areas of chaos, dysfunction maybe in your life. Recognize and in those areas what might be happening. Maybe go to the areas where you feel disillusioned with God. And what might be happening is you've begun to worship a distorted view of God instead of the one true God. And in those areas, maybe you need to come back, lay that down at the feet of Christ. Pick up God's word. I, t- I know Leadership 101 says when you are um, tired of saying it, people are just beginning to hear it. I'll never get tired of saying it, but I hope you're hearing it. Spend time in God's word because there he has revealed the one true God. Get to know him. He's way bigger. He's way better than any distorted image we can create on our own. And he reveals himself fully in Christ who fulfilled the law of God perfectly and then displayed the love of God in dying for your sin, your judgment should be paid for you. He takes that on. Then he reveals the power of God in defeating death and reconciling you back to the one true God. Lean in there, as John 15 says, abide in that love and your life will start to bear fruit because you're starting to know the one true God. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for, thank you for um, Christ. May we never get um, tired of saying, thank you, God, for Christ and his love for us. Thank you for revealing yourself in scripture that we have a place where as we start to, to believe the lies the enemy would tell us, we can go back. We can go back and find the one true God and, and you and your kindness will break us from the chains of those distorted images and draw us back into your great love, great power, to your mightiness, to your holiness. So we praise you. We praise you for your kindness on us who believe. I wanna give you just a second before I close this prayer, just to ask God, maybe repent to God for where you have worshiped a false version of him. Where have you been disillusioned by God? Maybe that's a way to say, God, I've been thinking of you wrongly. Help me to think of you rightly and to find joy in my life as I do. God, we praise you for your grace. Praise you for your, for your love in Christ. I pray for those that are in here that need to, to turn themselves back towards you. Maybe for the first time saying, yeah, I've never worshiped the one true God. I've been settling. God, I pray that they would surrender. They would receive Christ's offer of salvation and turn to you, surrender to you. God, we love you. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.